Why would we give less? This is something I heard my grandmother, who's in her 80s now, say pretty much my whole life. It's just one of those phrases from my grandmother she would constantly say when I was around her. Why would we give less? And she was always talking about God's faithfulness to her and the way God had been good to her and her family. And when she would give, whether it be money or time or whether she was serving her church, she would always say when, when, when talking about those things, why would we give less? But most often she said this to me when she was teaching me about money. You see, my grandmother worked at a hotel that was at one of the state parks in Tennessee. And she would collect change for me that folks left behind in their rooms. And when I would go to visit her, she would pour out all the change on the floor. And she would get me down in the floor, and we together would count every coin, every penny, every nickel, every dime, every quarter. We would count every cent together. And one of the principles she was trying to teach me about money is every cent you have is more than if you had nothing. So now you have more than you had before. And I, she, would, she would say that over and over again, trying to teach me that lesson that every cent you have matters. She'd also tell me it's not how much you make, it's how much you save. And you, here, you need, to, you need to save this. You don't, you don't need to run down the store and, and buy a Coke or, or whatever. You need to save this money. And she was always trying to teach me to save. One of the things she also taught me was how to tithe, what it meant to give 10% of everything that you earned, what it meant to give that to God, to give that to the church. And so we would, we would count out 100 pennies. And I, you know, as a small kid, a hundred of anything is, is a lot. And then she would count 10 back toward her. One, two, 10. And she would say, this is God's. And I remember, I, I vividly remember the first time she did that, how I was like, no, 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 that's mine. You got that for me. Those are my 10 pennies. And now I don't have a hundred anymore. A hundred is amazing. And I don't have a hundred. And she did this with, with every dollar she ever gave me. She would say, this is your tithe, even with Christmas gifts at times. She would, she would give me cash, and she may give me 10 $1 bills and then take one back. And, and as I got older, it was more money. And I would always get frustrated when she would bring an envelope over knowing she was going to take some of that money back. And I, I never was focused on what she was actually giving me. I would get focused on the, the 10% that she would always take back and say, this is your tithe. But anytime I got angry or frustrated with her, she would always say to me, why would you give him less? Why would you give God less? This is something we enjoy doing, giving, giving uh, to God because of all that he has done for us. And this is the point as we move to chapter 8 of Nehemiah. The people of God are making, renewing their covenant with God, beginning in chapter 8. 
They hear the Word of God. They're convicted of their sin. They confess their sin. They are repenting of their sin. And then last week in chapter 9, they recount God's faithfulness. Story after story after story of God's faithfulness to Israel. And here as Nehemiah has gathered the people of God in Jerusalem, the wall that he is determined to build to declare God's faithfulness after the city has been, has been laying in ruins for so long. And, and the people of God are returning to the city. As he finishes up leading these people in this covenant, the people of God in this covenant before God, one of the things the people determine is that they must give. They must be faithful in light of God's faithfulness. And as we move through this chapter, we're going to see the details at which they must give for the sake of God's glory in their midst, in their presence. And the question at the end is, why would they give less? Notice verse 28 of chapter 10, Nehemiah chapter 10. The first part of this section is a is list. The first part of this chapter is a list of names and all of these officials that are part of signing and stamping this covenant that the people of God are making before God. And then in verse 28, we see the rest of the people beyond the government officials, beyond Nehemiah, Beyond the, the, those who have traveled here to construct this wall, you have the people who are going to live in the city, the rest of the people, the priest, the Levites, the clergy, the gatekeepers, those who have roles in security, the singers, the worship leaders, the temple servants, the rest of the people, everyone, notice and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land. And we talked about this a little bit last week. As this covenant is being made, Israel separates themselves from the foreigners. They separate themselves from the non-Jews who are there. Why? Because God's promises have been made to Israel, and it, are, it is the Jews that have responsibility before God to withhold to their end of the covenant. Notice they separate themselves from the peoples of the land. Notice to the law of God. And so they are being made distinct here in this, this covenant renewal. They are being made distinct by the law of God. They are separating themselves to the law of God under God's authority. And this makes them distinct from the pagan nations all around them. It makes them distinct from anyone who is worshiping idols in their midst or serving false gods. They are separated to the law of God. And notice we begin to get at the heart of what kind of covenant they are making. Notice their wives and their sons and their daughters and all who have knowledge and understanding. The people of God have gathered together in the city for this covenant renewal. Notice verse 29. And they join with their brothers and the nobles to enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. Notice the two parts of what they're agreeing to. They agree to be cursed if they do not fulfill their end of the covenant. And they are committing to what we would see as, as loyalty or commitment to life that's in the covenant in this oath. But notice how it's described there. To walk in God's law. 
to walk in God's law. And as we continue, that was given by the servant Moses, the servant of God, to observe. Now, those two words help explain that the, the, the law of God encompassed all of life for the Israelite. We, we, we summarize the law of God in the Ten Commandments, but it was actually hundreds of details of laws, rules that had to do with their worship, had to do with their family, had to do with relationships, had to do with their diet, had to do with funerals, had to do with the economy, had to do with moral purity, had to do with physical purity. Here they are standing before God and they're saying, we will walk under your authority in every detail of our life. We will live before you in holiness, holiness. Set apart to you, set apart to your authority as the law of God given by Moses at Mount Sinai defines it. Now, why do they do this? It's because God is holy, meaning God is right and pure, and his people must be holy in every way. Now, I know holiness is on hard times in our culture, in our world. Even in saying the word holiness, some of you cringe. You, you think about days gone by, or you think about experiences in churches where holiness was, was defined by how you dressed, a type of style of worship, or just things you, you didn't want to do, or, or, thing, or ways in which you did not want to act because it, was sort, it sort of felt like bondage. It, it sort of felt like legalism. People were telling you things that, that you wanted to do, but you could not do them. This is the way we think about holiness. And yet here, I want you to know the people of God come before God and they are willingly committing to holiness before God. They, they understand that holiness is their only hope. And why is this? Because God has been faithful. Remember last week, the reason that they can come before God and confess their sin and repent is because God has been faithful to them. And the question we asked last week is, where else are you going to go in your sin? but to the one who has been faithful to you. And here, because of God's faithfulness, they declare that they will be obedient. They will be holy. And God's faithfulness must be what drives your holiness. God's goodness to you is to drive your holiness, your obedience. His goodness to you reminds you that he wants what is right and what is good for you. This is what God desires for you. And so in this chapter, they're committing to holiness because he is faithful. We just, Eric just read from Psalm 19 that describes God's word as silver. It's honey. It, it is good for us. God's word, God's law that calls us to holiness is not bad. Why? Because God is good and he wants what is good for you. And here the people of God understand God has a track record of goodness. Throughout history, every time God has called us to something and every time God has done something, it is for our good. Even when we were in sin, he loves us and forgives us. So when he calls us to do something, it's good for us. It shouldn't be a burden to us. 
And this is why for the Christian today, when you think about holiness, the gospel should drive your holiness. When you think about God's goodness in the gospel, that should not draw, draw, drive you to being apathetic about holiness and obedience. God's goodness in the gospel should open up your heart with joy and saying, I want to obey because I see very clearly that everything God has called me to do is for my good. He sent his son to die for my sins. He paid a debt I could not pay in the blood and righteousness of his son. He wants my good. So when he calls me to something, when he commands me to do something, I understand he desires what is good for me. The same way a parent that commands your child, you're not going to run out into the street. Or it's time to eat. Or it's time to go to bed. It's time to get to sleep. What are you doing as you issue those commands? Those are acts of care. Those are acts of love. You want what is good for your child. God has proven he is good and he desires your good in Jesus. And so when he calls you to love your enemy, you think, oh, that's just, that's just too much. When he calls you to forgive that person who has burned you, when he calls you to be merciful to those who you'd rather not be merciful to, and those commands and that conviction in your heart, it feels like such a burden. What you should understand in those moments is it's not burden, burdensome. It's what's best for you. He's calling you to be like Christ. When he calls you to refrain from sexual immorality, and that's, that just, at times, it, 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 it's such a burden. God doesn't want my good. He doesn't want me to experience something I want to experience. And yet in that moment, God is commanding what is best for you. When God commands that you should control your tongue, and you shouldn't gossip, and you shouldn't slander, and yet you feel such exhilaration by letting someone have it or condemning them behind closed doors, you are rejecting God's goodness and faithfulness in your life. In our homes, when he calls us to love our wives as Christ loved the church, to submit to our husbands and as children to obey our parents, God specifically commands those things in Scripture, not to make you miserable. He's proven he loves you and wants your greatest good in Christ. And so you can open up your life and your heart in obedience, knowing he wants your good. Notice as the text continues, first of all, we see that the covenant, their commitment to the covenant is to be marked by obedience. And then we see next that their, com their covenant, their commitment to the covenant is to be marked by holiness. So a part of the law, and here what we're going to see in verses 31 or 30 and 31 are applications of the law that they're going to make in Jerusalem. They're, they're going to pinpoint these two applications. Notice verse 30. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Now what was going on there is that through marriage, idolatry had infiltrated the people of God. 
through the marriage of their kids. False gods were being worshipped. And here the people of God say, we're not going to allow our children to be unequally yoked with pagans. We're going to only allow our children to be married to those who are trusting and worshiping Yahweh. That's what they're doing there. By the way, this has nothing to do with interracial marriage or interracial date, nothing at all. What this has to do, which is way more convicting, is being unequally yoked and marrying an unbeliever. That is the application of that text. And here, the people of God say, no, we're going to be a pure people in our families, And what our families believe and our families worship, they're only going to worship the true God. And so our children are only going to be given over to those who are worshiping Yahweh. And then verse 31, and if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Now, what's this about? Well, in Israel, there was this thing called the Sabbath principle. And it most often related to the Sabbath, Saturday. One in seven. We work for six days and then we rest on the seventh. Why? Because we're not God. There's only one God. And so we don't, we have to rest. We're finite and we remind ourselves every seventh day that, that we need rest. God doesn't need rest. We need rest. And we also remind ourselves every seventh day that God is the one who provides for us. We don't work seven days. We stop and we say, I'm not the one providing for myself with my crops, with everything I'm engaged with and my finances and the economy. No, God is providing all things. So we stop on the seventh day and we trust him. And on the Sabbath, there was also worship. We often think Sabbath just meant everybody sat around and took naps. That's not what was going on. As we're going to see in the rest of the text, the Sabbath was grueling for people because they had to offer sacrifices. They had to go to worship. It wore them out in some ways. It wore them out as they worked to trust God. But here we also see reference to the seventh year, which was a year of Jubilee. And every seventh year they stopped working in their crops. Why? Because we trust God to provide for us. God is the one who provided these crops. We're going to trust him. And they also released anyone from debt. And so every seventh year, people were released from their debt. Why? To remind them, we're not slaves. And so one of the things they commit to is we're we're not going to allow our families to be given over to idolatry, but we're also going to remain committed to worship through the Sabbath, committed to declaring our trust in God by the Sabbath rest. And even so, when there are opportunities, notice this. I want to be careful. This is according to your conscience. You have to apply this principle. But even here, when there are opportunities for us to make money on the Sabbath, we will not do so. When the, when the foreigners are among us and they want to, they want to trade, they want to, they want to do some deals on the Sabbath... We're going to say no. Why? We trust God to provide for us. 
And here they're going to be holy in their families, in their worship, and they're going to be holy in their economy. They're going to be holy in the way that they work. They're going to be distinct from the idolaters and nations around them. Now, this goes back to why the wall was even built. It separated people, it separated the people of God from the nations, from paganism, and the way that the pagans and the nations lived. But notice specifically here the way that the places that they are distinct, in their homes, in their marriages, in their worship, the economy, they're going to be distinct among those who are idol worshipers, worshiping false gods. And there is application of this for us today as Christians. We think, I'm not going to allow my children to marry, to marry idolaters. Well, hopefully that's the case for you. Or um, what, what does it mean for me to obey the Sabbath? Jesus is our rest. You know, we gather here on Sunday, the Lord's Day. How do these things apply to me? Well, you're still called to be distinct witnesses in the world around you. And if you just, if you just took principles here and you just very subtly applied them to your family, you would immediately begin to stick out. You would immediately to be, stand out as those who are witnesses in a culture. Think about our culture, the, the culture around us as it relates to our children how the culture is intentional about discipling your kids, the way they think about gender, the way they think about sexuality, the way they think about marriage, and not just those things. I know those things are hot topics, but the way the world around you is discipling your children in the way they think about success, the way they think about even, even a, a world distinct from a creator who created everything. And if you just stood up as a parent and said, I'm going to disciple my children in the gospel, in very, just in the beginning, just very initially subtle ways of saying, no, this is my child. I'm going to make sure they know there's a creator. I'm going to make sure they know there's a savior. I'm going to make sure they know that Jesus is Lord and they're going to follow him. And that's going to shape the things that we do in our home. You would begin to stand out. Most parents today are just passive with these things. We mold and we sh we're shaped by the world around us. And yes, there's also a Sabbath principle for Christians here. That the one in seven, it's appropriate to apply to the Lord's day. Sunday, the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. And in your family say, we're going to stop and declare who's really king of our life and our week on Sunday, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we, we don't want to be too legalistic, too legalistic about that around here. We want to allow you to apply the gospel to your life. But I guarantee you this, if you start saying to the people around you that church on Sunday is a priority, you just say that. No, we're going to be at church on Sunday. You start saying that to coaches. You start saying that to friends. You start saying that to, to the people. You will begin to stand out as a witness because it is so foreign to the people around us now and the culture we live in. I remember the days. I was talking to our Awana leaders this week, 
and just how Awana attendance changes on Wednesday. I remember when I grew up, you didn't have anything on Wednesday or Sunday. And we live in a totally different culture. And again, we're not going to be legalistic about it, but I am going to challenge you today. If you want to witness the gospel, why don't you just start there? You just start, that's easy. Because then you begin to stick out as someone who says, Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. And, I, and it, it, by the way, it's just a couple hours a week, by the way. It's just a couple. You give your life over to so many other things. But on this day, in this moment, we're going to be given over to Jesus. Now, we do want to remember the gospel in these things. And ultimately, Jesus is our rest But the people of God, they stood out among the nations in the way their family was ordered, in the way they thought about Sabbath worship. And then we're going to see the way they were committed to the temple. Notice verse 32. We will obey, we will be holy, and then we will give ourselves over to the temple. Verse 32. We also take ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of God. Now here, this was a significant amount of what you would call uh, taxes to the temple, to make sure the temple was up and running. And this would have been on top of the Persian tax that they paid. But this was given over to the temple. Notice for the showbread, for the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offering, for the Sabbaths, for the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, the sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel and all the work of the house of God. Now, one of the things we see here is house of God is used nine times in this section. And, and here, it refers to the temple But the history of the temple began with the Ark of the Covenant when the people of God were in the wilderness. And God gave them the Ark of the Covenant to represent his presence. And the Ark of the Covenant traveled with the tabernacle throughout the wilderness. And then eventually the people of God built this permanent place, the temple where the Ark of the Covenant that represented God's presence dwelt. Now, this temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, and here with Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, it has been rebuilt. But notice all of the things here it kept to take the temple going. It took their money. It took a temple tax. And notice what it was given over to. One of the things you got to love about Nehemiah is he loves, loves, loves inventory. He loves it. He loves people's names. He loves where we're working, what kind of tools we're using, how much time it took. He loves inventory. And he tells the people of God here, we have to give this temple tax because there's something called showbread. Now, this was in the Holy of Holies, and it actually means face bread or presence bread because it represented fellowship with the very presence of God. And the priests would would eat this bread to symbolize the presence of God was with the people of God, and we have fellowship with God. Notice the mention here of grain offerings. These grain offerings were to represent communion with God that the people offered. The burnt offerings. There were two burnt offerings every day and then two extra burnt offerings every Sabbath. Now, the burnt offering was symbolic in a lot of ways. It was on the altar, and there was always smoke going up from the burnt offering to declare God's presence is with us. 
And as long as you see this smoke going up, we as a people are accepted by God. And so we have to give so that the burnt offerings can take place. And then he refers to the Sabbath here. There were a myriad of offerings every Sabbath. And as I said earlier, the people of God weren't just laying around taking Sunday naps on the Sabbath. But if, even at this point, as you talk about grain offerings and burnt offerings, we're going to talk about sin. At this point, they are working hard to worship on the Sabbath. But for all these offerings to take place, the temple has to be up and running. It takes money. Notice he mentions new moons. There was a male goat and another burnt offering that was offered at every change of seasons. And then he refers to the feast, feast of unleavened bread, the feast of weeks, the feast of trumpets, and the feast of tabernacles. We talked about the, the, the feast of tabernacles just a few weeks ago. And during the, the feast of tabernacles, there was 189 animals that were sacrificed in just that one week. How's that going to happen? you got to give to make sure that happens. Then he refers to the holy things, those vessels used inside the Holy of Holies by the priest. And then the sin offering. The, The sin offering was a bull or a ram that was used for purification of the people of God when they came to confess the sin that they knew about or sin they didn't even know about. And then he refers to the atonement, which is the once a year sacrifice where the priest went into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled blood on the ark to declare that the people of God were accepted. Their sin was forgiven by God. Now, why go through all of that? Because it literally took thousands of animals per year just for normal sacrifice. Thousands. And on the Sabbath, thousands Each Sabbath, as all of these things add up, and then as the people of God brought their own offerings, there were hundreds of thousands of animals that were sacrificed for their sin year after year after year. At the change of seasons, festivals, Passovers, thousands of thousands of animals were sacrificed at the temple. There are even pictures in throughout history when, when people talk about the religion of the Israelites, of priests who are wading in the blood of animals just so the people of God could be accepted by Yahweh. And so you have to give to make sure this happens. Notice verse 34. He says, we, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering. Now this was Casting lots was just a way to determine God's will will here, but notice what they're doing. It's for the wood offering to bring into the house of God, according to our Father's house, at the times appointed year by year to the burnt altar of the Lord our God as it is written in law. So the priests were responsible for the wood that we talked about for the burnt offering that was always going. You could never let the fire die out. And so The priests here say, we will make sure that we commit that the wood is there for the burnt offering. And then verse 35, and we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of the ground and the first fruits of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Now, this idea of first fruit, it just meant that everything that you had, God gets first. He gets the first and he gets the best of everything you have. And here he refers to the trees in your yard. 
You bring them to the house of the Lord, to the priests who minister in the house of the Lord. Even the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law of the Lord, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks. So you even dedicate your children, the priests and the Levites, you dedicate your firstborn over to serve the Lord. And then your cattle and from your herds. So you're outside waiting for that cow to give birth the first of one of every year is brought to the Lord. Firstborn, God gets the first and the best. So it's not just trees, even your kids or your cattle. Notice it gets even detailed here in verse 38 or 7. And to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the first of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priest, to the chambers of the house. What's the point there? Everything. The first of everything goes to God, and it goes to the temple. And then the text continues, and to bring to the Levites the tithe from the ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns that where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tithes of the tithes to the house of God, to the chamber of the storehouse. Now, you're thinking, you should be thinking at this point, okay, we have a tax, and then we got to make sure that hundreds of thousands of offerings are, are, are able to be uh, given throughout the year. We got to make sure all that's in place, and then we got to give the first and the best to God. We got to bring those things to the house of God, and then on top of that, you're going to tithe us. You're going to. We got to give ten percent. And by the way, there were multiple tithes. Many tithes were required throughout the year. Some commentators have suggested that it. A tithe for an Israelite eventually added up to 26% of their income. Now this is on to, all this is building. Nehemiah is taking inventory. This is what we have to do for God's presence to be among us in the temple. But notice here, as, as, as the Levites, they collect the tithes. This is so that they can do their job. Verse 39 for the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessel of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. Notice, this is how it all ends. We will not neglect the house of our God. So all of that to say it required everyone to give a whole lot so that the temple was there and so that the presence of God was in the temple. And it is the presence of God that made them holy before God. And it required every Israelite, it required everyone who's taking part in this covenant to give. And not just to give a tithe. The, by the way, the tithe was the floor. It required that they give their whole lives over to God. That's the point. Is if you're going to enter this covenant, God owns it all. Your whole life. And one of the things we see in the history of Israel is the less they cared about their sin is the less they cared about the temple. When they began to not care about their sin or convicted of their sin, they didn't care about offering sacrifice to God. And they drifted into idolatry. And when they became apathetic about God and his presence, they became apathetic about the temple. And so it was... It determined 
where they were spiritually as a nation. Do you long for God to be with you? Then you will give everything to Him. Then you will give everything to Him. The point here is this covenant required much. And if you added it all up, millions of dollars of contributions throughout the year were given so that worship could continue and God's presence could be among His people. The covenant required much. The covenant required so much that ultimately they couldn't fulfill the covenant. They, They couldn't give enough. They couldn't sacrifice enough animals. They couldn't give enough money to keep God's presence in their midst. They couldn't keep that temple going. The covenant required too much of them. And it's because the writer of Hebrews says this, for it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. All that detail there, don't get lost in it. All of that detail, what it meant to obey and be holy and the offerings that had to go, it wasn't enough. And that's the whole point. As you read all of that, imagine setting down with with your spreadsheet and you're, you're getting your dues from the temple, and then you're sitting around as a family, and you're thinking about, what all do we have to give to the, to the temple this year? And you begin to list off the tax, and you begin to list off the sacrifices, and you begin to list off the firstborn, and you begin to list off all the tithes. You begin to list off all of those things. And you get to the bottom, and you say, what do we have left for ourselves? What is left? And that was the whole point. They can never pay enough, and neither can you. Because some of you come in here today, and when you think about making a covenant with God today, you think about, I want to get my life right. I've been trying and trying so hard. I've been going to this Bible study. I've been going to the BFG. I joined the equip group. I've started giving. They talked about giving today. I started giving to the church. I try to sing all of the songs. I go and I memorize all of the songs. And I read, and I'm trying so hard, trying so hard, trying so hard. And it's not working. You, st- you still feel like you're not there yet. You still feel empty, and because it's not enough, you can never get enough, give enough to earn God's favor. The writer of Hebrews basically says, Oceans of blood could not pay for our sin debt and cleanse us from the curse of death in our life. And you would neglect the house of God if you were there making this covenant. You would. By the way, some of us have, some of us are in this very moment because his name is Jesus and he is the temple who, who, who while the blood of bulls and goats could not pay for your sin it is his blood offered to God in your place in the pr- presence of God for you and so one of the questions you want to ask today is so does that mean that this new covenant with Jesus requires less of me requires less of me No, back to Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Remember, this is where we started out. In light of what Jesus has done, what is required of you today? In this new covenant that Jesus makes with his blood, 
Notice Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, the mercies of God, God's faithfulness, you present your bodies as living sacrifice. God's not requiring your money, your time, your schedule. He's requiring more of that, more than that. Your body as a living sacrifice. Notice, holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. This is your duty, your responsibility, your service to God is to offer him your life. But notice he says here, your life that is holy and acceptable. God has made your life holy and acceptable in Christ. And so what do you do? You offer your life to him. And then he says, do not be conformed to this world. This is what it means to be holy You're not shaped by the world around you, but you're transformed by the renewal of your mind. And mind here is your all of your life is being renewed by the gospel. And you prove, you test, or you prove, you discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Back to that idea that God wants your good because he's faithful to you. He desires what is best for you. And how do you experience his goodness? By waking up every morning and saying, in light of what you have done for me, here's my life. I'm not going to dole out 30 minutes for a quiet time and think that's enough. I'm not going to dole out an hour and 30 minutes every Sunday at church and think that's enough. I'm not going to dole out 10% and think that's enough. It's not enough. Jesus has paid the price. And the only right response is to say, all of my life is yours. And by the way, when we think about holiness, we always have to come back to the gospel. And this week, here's what I want you to think about when you think about holiness. You're not giving your life to be accepted by God. You are joyfully giving back to him what he has already made acceptable. He has made your life acceptable to offer it back to him. And so you offered, you offer unstained obedience in Jesus, and that's why you obey. You, you offer pure devotion in worship, in giving, in offering because of Jesus, and you offer it back to God. Waking up every morning and saying, my time, my family, my career, It's all yours. If you ever get into this idea of holiness where you are just listing things out, you will miss the point because you'll either think you never give enough or you'll think when you check every line on that list, you've done enough. No, only Jesus is enough. May we offer our lives as living sacrifices and may we ask the question, why would we ever give him less?